Psalm 16 and verse number 6 says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I have a goodly heritage. And uh, there's so many things we can really apply that passage to. Our heritage in America, which we'll, we'll look at quite a bit next week. I'm looking forward to next week. Make sure you're there. And I know several of you can going to be out of town. Sorry. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, I'm looking forward to next week. But, uh, but I want to ask this question. What will you and I leave behind? What kind of a legacy, what kind of a heritage are we going to pass on to our children and our children's children? And, uh, and it really is the question we ought to think about. Um, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump right into this. Our Father, we <clears throat> thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day. And Lord, I'm thankful that, uh, that you don't dwell in buildings made by hands. But Father, you've chosen to reside in us as the temples of the Holy Spirit. And then as we come together there, we are the local church where three or more are gathered, uh, uh, two or more are gathered in your name, you're there in our midst. And Father, I just pray that you meet with us in a special way today. Touch hearts. Pray, Lord, there be some decisions and some intentional uh, direction laid out as a result of us gathering today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, our founders... Um, by the way, last two years, the church sent my wife and I to D.C. to meet with our senators and Congress, congressman. Alaska gets one, so got to meet with one. And, and just got to see a lot of the monuments and the things around D.C. And one thing that became so apparent to me is our founders, they wanted to make it, they wanted to literally chisel in stone their thinking, their faith, the direction of this country, and they were willing to sacrifice uh, uh, their life, their fortunes, their sacred honor for the sake of posterity, for their children and their children's children, uh, willing to lay down your own life for your grandchildren to have a future. Boy, we've come so far from that, haven't we? We're such a selfish generation today. But, uh, but you know what, uh, one of the things that, that took place, I'm actually going to talk about it a little next week, but there was a, uh, there was a clergyman that, uh, that wrote one of the, one of the uh, senators and basically said, you know, will our great-grandchildren have enough evidence to prove we are a Christian nation? And he submitted the, the concept of uh, uh, eventually becoming our, becoming our nation, national motto, in God we trust. And uh, he said, we need something that says what we believe. There needs to be something that says we look to God. And, and even in that day, he looked around and said, I don't think we have much evidence to, be pa to pass on. Will those who come behind us find enough evidence to say this is what they believed? And they've passed it on to us. You know, there have been a lot of funerals where uh, I think the, the, the minister had to really squirm through it because, quite frankly, he didn't know. He didn't know where this man's eternal soul was. Uh, and quite frankly, none of us know, but is there enough evidence that points in a direction that gives some evidence of your salvation, uh, some fruit to where the family can say, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt he's with the Lord. Um, I want to kind of share a couple of things, you know, when we talk about legacy and passing on. We talked a lot about, uh, uh, yesterday was a wonderful message Brother Burgess gave, and we talk a lot about passing on certain things to our children and, and instilling things, and, and quite frankly, this does not happen by accident. And if there's one thing that we can just, just keep emphasizing and, and pounding into us is this, it doesn't happen by accident, it doesn't happen through osmosis. But really what's going to end up happening with all of us, good and bad, is monkey see, monkey do. Monkey see, monkey do. And, and, and we, we pass on certain things, good things, bad things. And, and, and what tends to happen is there, there tends to be a, uh, until there's like maybe a cutoff point. Say, say for example, a, uh, uh, a father is an alcoholic. And he's such an aggressive alcoholic that his children 
say, I want nothing to do with that. You see, there does come a point where it's almost a reset and say, I'm, I'm going to stay far away because I saw what it did to my home, my family. But, you know, it usually has to get pretty far before something like that happens. Typically, an alcoholic is going to beget an alcoholic. You see, immorality is going to beget immorality. And on and on. And what we do is we pass these things on. Uh, we're even reminded in the Bible in Deuteronomy, visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And, and we might call that uh, uh, a, f- a family sin or a family uh, trapping, if you would. And they fall into this. But I do believe on the flip side, a goodly heritage, as the psalmist said here, could produce in its children a continuation of a goodly heritage. Not only that, but what you're going to find many times is whatever's passed on potentially multiplies in the next generation. I'm a, we're, going to, we're going to look at some examples in a minute, but it can, you know, I, I desire and I pray for my children. I pray my son will be a far greater Christian than I ever was. And, uh, you know, I don't know what God's got for his future. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's expressed interest in, uh, in even following my footsteps and being a preacher and pointing others to Christ. If that's the case, if God does that with him, I, I pray he'd be, he's a far more effective preacher and orator than I ever was. I pray that my children have convictions beyond their parents. It's my desire. But you know what? They could also capitalize on some of my weaknesses and take that as far as it could go as well. Um, <clears throat> says here it says in uh, let me give you a couple of examples of what we see in the bible now in the bible especially in the old testament and uh, and uh, the chronicles and uh, and things they're not following every family that was in israel they're following typically the kings right these were the influencers these were the ones that that really god was using and leading his people and he was working with the kings i want to uh, by the way there are a ton of examples of this i want to just lay out a couple of examples in second kings 21 19 through 21, it says uh, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was, uh, uh, doesn't matter what his mother's name was. Um, And it says, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. Where did he learn to do evil in the sight of the Lord? Dad did it. It wasn't important to dad. And he walked in all the ways of his father. Did you get that? He was a clone of his dad. He walked in all the ways of his father and served the idols that his father served. Wait a minute, I thought Israel was a, uh, a, uh, 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 you know, for a better term, Christian nation. They followed Jehovah God. The king followed after idols. His son, the next king, followed after idols. By the way, what, what is idolatry today? And, and, and as, as far as what we look at today, I, I'd say a big part of it is going to be our value system. What do your children see you bowing down to? Because it's going to be their idols too. And, and, and so it goes on, he says, And he worshipped them, and he forsook the Lord God of his fathers, his heritage, and walk not in the way of the Lord. Where did this guy learn that? Daddy. 1 Kings 22, uh, 51 through 53. Ahazai, Ahazai, that guy, the son of Ahab, uh, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 17th year of, boy, these names, uh, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Jehoshaphat, there it is. King of Judah. And reigned two years over Israel, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. Surprised? And in the way of his mother. And in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. Now, by the way, who was Ahab? You remember Ahab? Who was his wife? Jezebel. So this king, this, their children, followed, followed daddy, followed mommy. And mommy was, I think, more wicked than daddy in this situation. She was a... Uh, a prophetess, a priestess, if you would, of uh, of uh, uh, of uh, Baal. Excuse me. Walked in their way and in the way of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. Now, to whom much is given, what? 
much as required. His influence caused a whole nation to sin. You get that? It wasn't just about him. It wasn't even just about his children. It caused a whole nation to sin. And he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the anger of the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. God was already angry at his father. His son just kind of added fuel to the fire, right? And by the way, this is all leading up to Israel's captivity where God says, all right, time to chase him. 2 Kings 28, 8 and 9. Jehoiakim was 18 years old and he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months and his mother's name was Nehashta, daughter of Elnathan uh, of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. By the way, when a king did what was right, you know who they compared him to? Anybody? David. And he did that which was right all the days of his life, just like his father David. Just like his father David. Well, who's David? Man for God's own heart. Because David was perfect. Never messed up. Something very interesting and something very human about David, isn't there? He was a mess up like every one of us. But his heart sought after God. And his heart sought after a reconciliation with God. Every one of these kings messed up. There was something about David that he kind of became the standard of what a good king looked like, really, until Josiah came along. Then he was the new standard. But amazing how he did that which was evil inside of God, just like Daddy. And this other guy did evil inside, just like Daddy, and got to the place where any caused all of Israel to sin. Amazing influence fathers have, isn't it? This was mentioned yesterday, you know, dads are kind of like Superman in kids' eyes. God, I think, did that intentionally. We have great influence. It's interesting, uh, statistics, the numbers of uh, fatherless that are inmates in prison. And, and, and you know, there, there, was no, there was no hero in their life. Or there was a bad hero. And what happened? They did evil like their dad, like their father. Many times, it's going to be a similar sin or a similar vice that grabs a hold of, uh, uh, that, that had the father is going to grab the son, and many times will be amplified. I think of Eli the priest in 1 Samuel. Eli had an eating problem. He couldn't control his appetite. The Bible says that, uh, in fact, he was so large that when he heard that the ark was taken, he fell out of his chair, and the weight of his fall broke his neck, and he died. He couldn't control his physical appetites. His children, the Bible calls them sons of Belial, the sons of the priest. You might call these preacher's kids. And, the, and the, 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 what they were known for is being sons of the devil. He couldn't control his physical appetite of food. They couldn't control their sexual appetite. And they were seducing the women in the temple. I mean, talk about sin of sins. Blasphemy of blasphemies. And, and you see how it's passed on. He never, and, and in fact, the prophet uh, Samuel, who was raised under Eli, God used him to tell Eli why God was taken the priesthood from him, and he tells him, you did not restrain your children. We have a dad who is a spiritual leader in Israel. He didn't restrain his children. So God took the priesthood from him. And we, we, see, we see these these examples. I think of David. We mentioned David earlier in a positive light, but let's say, uh, the, the reality is there's some negative light over David. David had some issues. David did something wrong. And when we look at Scripture, we think God's okay with it. David had a few wives. In Deuteronomy, the Bible says that kings are not to multiply to themselves wives. Interesting. But we, we, that was the custom, though. Kings had multiple wives. So much so that when he saw someone else's wife that he desired because he's the king, he has everything he wants, and he 
goes and gets her and murderous scandal takes place. Of course, amazing in God's grace, how he used the whole situation, really. And Bathsheba became the mother of Solomon, the one who gave us the book of wisdom. And, quite frankly, brought into the lineage of Jesus Christ, an adulterous relationship. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. However, David laid out an example for his children. Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived, many times did not take his own counsel. David had a couple wives. Solomon had 700 wives. And then there came a point where he just stopped marrying them because he realized, you know what comes with a wife is a mother-in-law. So maybe I'll just take concubines from here on out. So he had 300 more concubines. I don't know about the mother-in-law thing, but it's a good theory, I think. Not only that, but in Deuteronomy uh, 6 and 7 around there, uh, the children of Israel were told, do not take wives of other nations. Why? Because they're going to pull your hearts to their gods. What did Solomon do? Well, quite frankly, he probably started running out of women in Israel. <laughs> so he was taking wives. He, he married a daughter of a priest, of a pagan priest. He, 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 he married, and exactly what was, was predicted happened. It turned his, pulled his heart from God. So much so that remember when uh, the queen of Sheba came to search out the knowledge, the wisdom of Solomon, she said, boy, the half has not been told. You've got servants that are happy. Everything is just wonderful. By the end of his life, his son begins to reign, and he starts taking counsel with his dad's counselors. And you know what they said? Your dad was very hard on these people, and no one's happy. Paraphrasing. What happened along the way? Well, when his heart was turned from God, well, that's what it says. It says that in the very Proverbs that Solomon wrote. When the righteous reign, the people what? Rejoice. But when he started going away from righteousness, the people weren't rejoicing anymore. And so you have, you have this amplification of these similar sins going on. Turn with me, if you would, to Judges real quick. Judges. And then right after Judges is Ruth, and those are just the two places we'll be for the next few minutes. Judges 2, look at, um, in, in the beginning of Judges, keep in mind what was taking place. Uh, Joshua had passed on the scene. They'd gone into the land to occupy it, but there's still a lot of battles going on, a lot of wars. And, and God gave uh, seven or eight charges for Israel. When they go in, they're to destroy everybody. They're not to make any kind of peace treaty with them. They're not to marry their daughters. Uh, all these lists of things. And, and quite frankly, as they went down, they broke every one of the lists that was given in, uh, in Deuteronomy and reiterated in Judges 1. So by the time you get down to, uh, to Judges uh, 2, verse number 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. They buried him in the border of his inheritance in, uh, in uh, Timasheres, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the side of the hill of Gash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. Now, whose generation? This is Joshua's generation. These are all the old men of Israel. These are the ones that led them into battle, led them into the promised land. This is Joshua's generation. They saw the mighty hand of God move. They saw the walls come down in Jericho from simply marching around and trusting God. They saw God fighting on their behalf. They saw, they saw victory after victory after victory. They're all now buried. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done. And the children of Israel did evil on the side of the Lord and served Balaam. Folks, this is one generation. Then it goes on. They, what did they do? They married the girls. They married the boys of the neighboring pagan countries. By the way, I want to say this. God here is not condemning inter or, or, or uh, 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 different races or ethnicities marrying. There's, there's, a, there's a whole religious system tied to it. 
that God was saying, you need to stay with your people who follow your God. That's what it says in the New Testament. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, right? And, uh, and so I, I just want to say this, people that, that, that condemn, you know, uh, people marrying into other races and that kind of stuff, uh, uh, I don't believe God's condemning that whatsoever. However, uh, and by the way, Israel was a different situation than Christianity. Laying a foundation, but uh, just want to kind of throw some of that stuff out there. But the issue is this, their heart or their love for these these, these people of the pagan societies was going to pull their hearts away from God. And that's exactly what we see. It says they forsook God and they turned away from God. I want to zero in on one family that lived in this exact time. And that's the book of Ruth. Go to the next, uh, next book over. Ruth chapter 1. Now, before we read Ruth 1, look at the last verse of the previous book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And quite frankly, that's a summary of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is like the soap opera of the Bible. <laughs> it's a crazy book. But I believe Ruth takes place right there around Judges 2, 3, right around there. And notice what it says. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So from the beginning, we, we learned some things. Have we seen any violation of Scripture at this point? Where's Moab? Is that in Israel? Do you know anything about Moab? These are, these are enemies of God. These are the descendants of Lot's daughters. They left, let me just say, Bethlehem. Anybody know what the word Bethlehem means? Who else is from Bethlehem? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Anybody know what Bethlehem is? House of bread. Anybody know what Judah means? Praise. Here we have this family. Things are getting tough. And, and they leave the house of bread and praise. And they go to Moab. A place of God's enemies. A place, quite right, they hated Israelites. And, but he goes there with his two sons. And look what it says in verse 2. And the name of the man was uh, uh, Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons, uh, uh, Molon and, and Chilion. Uh, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. Uh, that's where they're from. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Notice in verse 1, they, uh, they sojourned there. Verse 2, they continued there. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. And the name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died. Also both of them and the, women, or the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. I want to talk just a minute about this Elimelech character. So what took place in Bethlehem where they were from, house of bread. What's bread, by the way? That's provision. That's substance. That's, 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 I live off that. And yes, I understand there was a famine, but they left to go to a pagan land. Now, again, this is the time of the judges. Uh, by, by the end of uh, chapter 2, they're already turning away from God. By the end of the whole book, Everyone's doing that which is right in their own eyes. He's making a judgment call. Hey, he got laid off. Some difficulties started to arise, and I can just see his a conversation with his rabbi preacher. And he says, you know, there's some, uh, there's some work down there in Moab. And I can see that preacher. Is there a church down there in Moab? Well, you know, it's just going to be for a little while. I've got my wife there, and I've got my two sons. And, uh, and, uh, and I can just see the reasoning he goes through because I've seen people reason. Well, preacher, I've prayed about it. Because here's the reality. He may not have some tangible evidence why this is God's will, but how can you argue against I prayed about it and I have peace? 
Be careful about that one, by the way. The heart, is, the heart is deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know who else had great peace? Jonah. Remember when the storm came and the mariners had to wake him up? What meanest thou that sleepest, right? What are you doing sleeping? There's a storm that's going to kill us. How do you sleep like that unless you're at perfect peace? He was I have peace, so it must be God's will. Well, I'm just saying be careful. I can just see him reasoning there with that rabbi. And it's just going to be for a little while. But just like Lot, you pitch your tent towards Sodom. Next thing you know, you find yourself in the gate. Even the, even the men there, they said, this guy was just a sojourner. Now he's going to tell us about our life. He's going to tell us that we're, that we're sinners, that we're doing wrong. I can just see him reasoning with him. Now, just to give you a little bit of a historical background, the way Israel worked and uh, the different tribes had different regions, and they each had their own land. And they were given that land to cultivate it and to farm it. Maybe if they're doing pretty good, they might hire some servants to, to work the fields and so forth. But, but they each had land. And, and if things got really tough, what you do is you sell the land. And maybe someone else could maybe work it or get something going with it, but you sell it for a season. And if things are really bad, you end up selling yourself as a servant. But every 50 years, things get, you get a reset. All right, let's try this again. The year of Jubilee, and, and then God kind of laid this out for Israel. Everyone gets their land back, and, and they kind of start over. Debts are all forgiven. So to this point where, where he's willing to take his kids and take his wife and go to another land, he must have already gone through some of these steps. He must have already sold his land, given up on that. He let go of his portion in the house of bread and prayed. Go to Moab. Then something unexpected happened. And by the way, it's usually unexpected. Dad dies. Now mom's in a foreign land, in a pagan land. By the way, I don't know if you know much about Moab. Their god was uh, Ashtar. They'd sacrifice children to this god. That's this land. Now Naomi's got to raise these, these two boys. And the boys, they go to this land, and uh, they're starting to get of age, and they look around, and they start seeing some Moabite women. And something happens when young men meet young women. Their hearts start pounding. The blood supply to the head gets cut off. Then one day, the young man says to the young woman, Wilt thou? And she wilted. And they get married. Now remember Deuteronomy. You're not to take wives of those women, or of those, of those nations, rather. Because they're going to turn your hearts away from God. But can I say, Dad turned them away from God quite a ways away when he said, hey, let's go down to Moab, where there's no church, there's no influence, there's no place for his family. How could his boys know better? Then similarly, something happened. We don't know what the circumstances were, but those two boys died. Now you have Naomi and her two Moabitess daughters-in-law. What do they do? I think about uh, not only did he leave it late, bring his wife to another country, no family, nothing to kind of look to, but I think about Proverbs uh, 13.22 about men leaving an inheritance for their children and their children's children. Naomi had nothing. In fact, the only inheritance that she would have had, they left behind in Bethlehem, Judah. Anything that they would have had was back there. Now here she is with nothing. There was something uh, recently when I came up here, I, I took a um, when I came to Alaska, there were a couple jobs that I took that uh, it could have been some danger in these jobs. And, and uh, my wife and I realized, I think, uh, I think we need to get some life insurance. Because you never know what's going to happen. By the way, even if I had a safe job, a desk job, you never know what's going to happen. So I realized, you know what, I need to have my family 
prepared. You know, uh, at this point, we don't have this huge, uh, we don't have a big retirement plan. We don't have the huge savings. We're, and so in the process, I, I, I need to have something in order. And so I want to say, dads, uh, are you ready to die? Is your family ready for you to die? These are things we don't want to talk about. But this guy died and left his family with nothing. They weren't ready for him to die. And you might say, well, he was poor, he was this, he was that. He was in a foreign country. No family. Nothing. They're over there, and, uh, and he passes on. And now the same thing with the children, with, uh, with his sons. They didn't know. They didn't understand. And quite frankly, this was all new to me. This wasn't passed on to me. I had to, I had to kind of learn these things and say, I need to make sure my, my family are taken care of. This is what God has given me to steward over and to make sure they're prepared. Can I die today? You know, it's interesting uh, times when, uh, you know, in the Bible, uh, I think about, um, remember Naaman in the book of Esther? He committed suicide. But before he did that, he went home and got his affairs in order. Got his household in order. I, I find that so humorous. He, he's very responsible before he goes out. But, you know, if someone knew they were going to die or someone goes into battle, even in fact, even in, uh, those of you in the service, if you're going to be deployed, one of the things you, they, they look at, they make sure, okay, are, is, your, is your life insurance up to date? Are, are you know, your children, are they taken care of? How's your will? They, they, they go through this checklist to make sure because worst case scenario, you might not come home. And quite frankly, people die in car accidents. People die in brain aneurysm. How do you protect yourself from that? I'm just saying that's reality. Dads, are, are, is your family ready for you to go? Just some real life road meets the road th things to think about that this man failed in. How about the direction of his family? These two boys, he brought them there. And, and uh, remember uh, Abraham. He was in a foreign country because God told him to go there. But you know what Abraham said for his son? We're not going to get you a bride of this land. So he sends his servant back home to get a bride back home. It was that important, Abraham. And by the way, he didn't even have a command written down from God about that. But he knew it was right. I need to get a wife of my people for my, my, my son. And I'm just saying, you know, they came, as he comes to this place, they're no doubt desolate, and they don't have, you know, two pennies are rubbed together, and they're here in this land of Moab, and, uh, and his children are coming of age. I don't know if he died uh, before they were even adults or, or what the timeline in there was, but they left uh, Bethlehem single. They get to Moab, and they're going to be married. Somewhere along the way, he never made it very clear. Children, when you are ready to get married, you better go back home. By the way, young people, when you're ready to get married, you better be sure you have the blessings of your parents. You better sure be sure you go back home. You know, I love weddings. I love all the symbolism in weddings. Today we kind of go through the motions. It kind of means nothing in our society. You know, there's something about a, a white wedding dress when that bride comes down that altar pure. Today it's just you know, whatever, but that's what it's supposed to be. The symbolism of the ring. The symbolism of the father bringing that bride to that young man and giving her hand to him. Transferring of authority and transferring of, uh, of care and protection and all the things that the man in her life represented. And it's showing before everybody, dad is okay with this and giving her over. You see, so many things there. But I just want to say this, that, uh, that, that young people, if you want to start off right, make sure you go back home for your bride, for your groom. And what I mean by that is make sure the families are involved. Make sure you have the blessings. Don't run off in rebellion. Don't start off on the wrong foot. But it's amazing the direction, that was, or lack of direction, really, that was laid out. So you have Naomi, she's got to make this tough decision. What do I do? So finally she decides, I need to go back to the house of bread and pray. 
She starts heading there, and the two daughters-in-law follow. They said, what are we going to do? She says to them, look, I'm old. I, I don't have any other sons to give you. And even if I were to get remarried and, 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 and have some more children, you'd have to wait another 20 years before they're of age. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and by then you'll be out of childbearing years, and uh, what am I supposed to do? She said, just go back home. You're widows, go back home. By the way, it's incredibly difficult for a widow, and it's even more difficult for a widow of another country. So Orpah, it's funny, if you look at the text, I'm not going to focus in on this, she, she lets Naomi make the decision for her. She says, okay, and goes. You know, to not decide is to decide. But then you have Ruth. I love the commitment of Ruth. She says, Naomi, I'm going with you. And your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Now, think of this. She is a Moabite woman. If there are any faithful Jews left in Israel, they're not going to have anything to do with her. I love the, the redemptive story of Ruth. We're not going to focus in on that. But, uh, but they're not going to have anything to do with her. But think about it. Right is right, no matter how hard it's going to be. And I'm going to follow you, and, then, and Jehovah is going to be my God because I've seen that faith in you, though it may have been a diminished faith, and though it may have you know, kind of fallen and faltered because you would already come out of where God wanted you to be. But there's something drawing you back. You know that your God is faithful. In fact, the place you live, God has called it the house of bread and praise. There's got to be something there. So she decides to follow her back, and I can just see those crossroads there. You know, maybe, a, maybe an old wooden sign right there halfway between Moab and, and Bethlehem, and, you know, this way or that way. What's it going to be? And she decides, I'm going to go with Naomi, and I'm going to head back. But think of all the heartache and all the trouble they had to go through. Why? Because the dad, a father, did not prepare them. They weren't ready. And, and, and it's so tough when, when, you see, when you see ladies having to make these hard decisions. And, and, and dad has either been removed from the picture or, or not active in it. And, and I'm saying, men, take the lead. Hey, it's okay. Discuss with your wife. I'm not saying you got to have all the answers, have those conversations and things. But, but listen, men are the lead. It falls on us. Oh, whatever you think, dear, that's fine. Right, Carrie? Whatever you think, that's fine. And the wives want their husbands to lead. They want them to make decisions. Whatever you think, yeah. You're, you're, you're wise, I trust your judgment. Well, I trust my wife's judgment. But this is God's structure of things. And she says, you need to lead. <laughs> you need to make some decisions. But as I think about my son, my son and my daughters, and I think about what I've laid down for them in the legacy, and I, I have to ask myself this, can I go die today? Are they going to be taken care of financially? Are they going to be taken care of morally? Meaning, do they have enough to go off of that they know what steps to take? Dad set me on a journey, and I owe it to him. I'm going to stay on this journey. He had a conviction about God, and I'm going to take on that conviction. He had, he had laid a path, and though I don't see how far the path goes, I can see it up to here, and, and chances are it's going to keep going in that direction, and so I'm going to keep on treading that path. Though he was removed sooner than I wanted, I know where I'm going, and I know what, the plan, what it is ahead, and, and that much more, God, my, my dad would want me to cling to God and to cling to his word because I need it that much more in my life now that he's removed. I don't mean to be morbid today, guys, but this is, this is something to think about and to challenge us men. Um, you know, two weeks in a row, I'm beating up on the men, I know. Uh, but, but, but let's think through this. Can I go die today? I'm not planning on it. I hope God gives me a long life. But this is reality. I think of a friend of mine who uh, was killed in Iraq around the time that I was over there. His uh, precious bride was uh, pregnant with their first child. And he went to Iraq to serve his country. And you know, he was taken out with a sniper bullet. You know what percentage have died from sniper? 
in Iraq? Like less than 1%. He was taken out. I know people died in car accidents, motorcycle accidents, random things like a brain aneurysm. Walking along, dead. He was in perfect health. We didn't expect it. That's the thing about death. You don't expect it. But it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this is the judgment. So, so there's, there's this side. Are you ready to die? Are you, are, is your family ready? But then, listen, on the other side, are you ready to die and meet God? Where do you stand today? It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Uh, do you have your affairs in line, so to speak? Uh, do you know where you stand with God? 1 John uh, uh, 5, uh, verse 17. Um, These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. And God says, I want you to have that confidence. I want you to be ready. And so you can have with, with, with Paul when he said, for me to live is Christ. You know, Christ has something for him and for all of you. And, 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 and to live is Christ, Christ living through me. But to die, <laughs> he said, that's what I'm looking forward to. He says, that's gain. Why? He was so confident. He was so ready to meet God. You know, a lot of Christians that even know for sure, theologically, from the Scriptures, that they are saved, I don't think they're excited about going and meeting God. They're in love with this world. Go away. Leave me alone. They're in love with this world. But, uh, but I want to challenge us with that, you know. It's going to be far better. It'll be worth it all when we see Christ. So there's a challenge. I know it's simple, and, but, you know, I think, it, I think there's a very practical element. Men, maybe there's some things this week we need to get our affairs in order. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not saying any of you are going to die this week. But you could. You could. Hey, does your family know Jesus? Do they know how to walk with him? Do your children know where to find wisdom and truth? Have you laid it out for them? We have some wandering women in this story that are kind of directionless. Now, I know the end of the story of Ruth. It's amazing, but you know what's so amazing about it? God has had his hand all over it. Left to themselves, they were in trouble. They were really in trouble. When my children go through my stuff when I die, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, whatever heirlooms are left behind or what have you, I wonder if they're going to find enough evidence to point them to Christ. Say, wow, great-granddaddy sure loved God. He was his life. You know, that ought to get us back on track. Great-granddaddy would want us to be in church. Great-granddaddy would want us to walk with God. Because he, he, he walked with God, and he, and he left this legacy for us. And as the psalmist said, I have a goodly heritage. I know we don't really think that far ahead. We, we're not trained that way. It's here and now. And in my mind, quite frankly, my children are always going to be this size. And he's blowing me away that, like, my daughter is the size of my wife. I keep thinking, I'm walking behind her, and I'm thinking it's her. And the, the, only thing, the only reason I can tell it's not my wife is because she's talking like this. <laughs> the teenage stance. <laughs> I'm just teasing you kids. But uh, quite frankly, one day they're going to be adults. And they're going to have children. And you know, that's really going to be the test. And then they're going to grow up. And then they're going to have children. And then they're going to grow up. And then they're going to have children. Because that's how it's been for 6,000 years. And that's how the cycle is going to continue until, uh, as long as the Lord tarries. So what are we leaving behind? You know, a lot of our Bible, yes, I know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. But a lot of it's letters. Hear, my son, the instruction of a father and attend to no wisdom. For I give you good doctrine. 
Forsake not the law of thy father and of thy mother. Over and over again, he's saying, here's something I needed to write down so you, my son, could carry it on. Now, it's, God's preserved it for us today. I'm very thankful for that. But it was a daddy to a son concerned. Son, I want to give you some wisdom, some instruction, some parting words. So, kind of simple, but I want to just challenge dads. And quite frankly, it does, in extension, go out to everybody, but uh, are you ready to die? By the way, you think we have a good time here at camp? Wait till we all get to heaven. We're going to have a wonderful time. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about heaven, but I just can't help but think God saves the best for last. That's just God. I, I, he's an extravagant God. I sure love you, church. I sure appreciate you. We're, uh, we're going to get ready for some baptisms. Um, when we dismiss here, uh, we've kind of done every day. I do want to encourage you guys maybe to spend just a moment in prayer with your spouses, with your family. I don't want to just send you out right now. We're going to do baptisms. But uh, we're going to talk about some of these things. Men, be open. I know how hard it is sometimes when you try to make a decision because you're right and, and uh, you kind of feel like... Uh, you might feel kind of uncomfortable if the wife's telling you, you need to go get that life insurance taken care of. Well, I know, you know. Be open. Let her talk to you, how she really feels. When we finally did it, Carrie pushed me for a while, and weren't she so relieved when I got it? She's like, okay, now you can go in that little tiny plane to the bush somewhere and do a job. <laughs> Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll have all the people that can be baptized, if you can come on up.